Welcome to the podcast, Cocktail Party Economic Conversations, with your hosts, Evie Animate and Richard Maranta. Well, welcome to uh, the last episode of Cocktail Party Economic Conversations. We're looking at Chapter 12. This is the chapter, the last chapter with a special guest. And uh, I want to uh, welcome um, Richard Orilowo. He's going to talk a little bit about finance because he's pretty aware of that field. So Richard, I want to say welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Hi, Richard. Yep. Welcome as well. Um, so yeah, I just going to ask you a few questions about your, um, your role there your, as uh you are uh, in investor relations and you're the chief executive officer at Storyboard Communications. And I was just say, saying how much I love that name because I'm sort of in creative field. And it's to me, it's all about uh, getting people to really see uh, the information or visualize it or, or get the story of, of what's behind it. So I, I really like that. And uh, so, yeah, you just go ahead and give us sort of your journey from University of Guelph to where you are now and just so we can learn a bit about what you do there. Okay, thank you guys very much. Um, again, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, yes, I did go to Guelph. I'm, I'm an old man, probably not as old as, as Rick, but I graduated, <laughs> <laughs> I graduated I think, uh, 2005, did four years economics and finance. It was great. When I left school, you know, the question was, what's next for me? And I got into finance. My career started at TD Bank Financial Group, where I started from the bottom. I was uh, a bank teller working part-time and worked my way up to become a financial advisor, you know, helping people with all financial products like their mortgages and their mutual funds and opening up their day-to-day -day banking and small business stuff. And from there, I decided to pursue at that time my certified management accountant, uh, today now CPA. Uh, so I decided to work in TD Securities. I started to work in the investment banking group doing accounting, helping them with loan syndication accounting and all their financial products. I did that for three years and then I moved over to TD Asset Management and then saw that whole, you know, I guess working in the asset management side and helping with the high net worth accounts and the institutional trading. Can and I just ask a question? Because I think a lot of times we don't understand what's the difference? Uh, like when people work in the two divisions, like how are they different from each other? In terms, okay, so when we look at TD, when you look at TD Bank Financial Group, as you know, that's the retail arm. So that's where they do all of their retail banking through their branch network that's now expanding significantly across the U.S. They actually have more TD branches in the U.S. than they do in Canada. Uh, now you have TD Securities versus TD Asset Management. TD Securities is really the investment banking side of things. So they're going to do the investment banking. They're going to do all of the research. So if you have research analysts writing research reports on different companies across different sectors, they will sit underneath within TD Securities. Um, so they're doing either investment banking deals in terms of debt financing, they're doing the equity financing, they're doing large IPO, initial public transaction, initial public offerings. So that's really TD Securities. When you now look at TD Asset Management, that's the, the side that really manages the money. And that goes back actually to the branch network. When I worked within retail at the branch, we would sell mutual funds. Those mutual funds would have portfolio managers. Those portfolio managers work for TD Asset Management. So it's interesting to work at TD, I guess, call it Bank Financial Group in the retail side at Canada Trust and actually now start to understand these products that we were offering to these different investors were actually being created at the institutional level. 
And these funds were now bulked in with other funds because TD Asset Management will now also manage money for larger institutions, not just on the retail side. And this is where you saw an aggregation of the asset management business of the retail arm, TD Waterhouse that does more of the high net worth, and now the institutional. But all of that happens at the top level within TD Asset Management, and they have a system that aggregates down the all of the funds into the different accounts, but they do all the trading at a wholesale level to save on cost. So that's really how the two, the two departments are different. So when you went from one to another, was that an hard, like, was it hard to do that? It wasn't so hard because, of course, TD really promotes people to move around with the, in the organization. And what you find is when you work in just like, again, the TD, call it Canada Trust arm, you don't really understand what the other arms of the businesses are doing. So as you start moving through the different levels of the organization, it's encouraged at TD. And then you get to understand how these different divisions actually feed in all into TD Bank Financial Group, which has so many different business lines. They have TD Insurance, they have the wealth management arm, they have the retail arm, they have the credit card business. And then you start to see how all of these businesses actually roll up into one large organization, right? Cool. Yeah. So that's, that's really now where I got my passion for investor relations. When I was working at TD, I got to see what the different areas of the banks were doing by moving through the organization, but that happens at a, such a slower pace. When you work in investor relations, the definition of IR is really you have an executive team that you have to be their microphone. There's a bunch of investors and stakeholders that are interested to understand how this company is doing from an operational and a financial standpoint, but they're busy, busy running the day-to-day -day operations of the firm. So they have an investor relations department, whether or not you're in-house working as an employee or they hire a consulting agency such as Storyboard to say, I don't have time to talk to these thousands of shareholders. You do that. I'll tell you what we're doing, where we're going and our path forward. And you help me communicate that story to the masses, hence Storyboard Communications. So I did investor relations first in-house for a couple of firms. One is Yamana Gold. Imana Gold is a mining company with assets across South America, and now they've recently purchased, about a year ago, um, a mine here in Quebec. And then I moved out of the, the gold business and moved into oil and gas. And I work for a company called Pacific Rubialis Energy. They're an oil and gas company that has all of their assets in Bogota, Colombia. I worked for them doing IR for four years. So they were traveling about 70% of the time in that role doing one of two things. Either one, I was in Colombia trying to understand what they were trying to do to their business, which is not easy. Or two, I'm traveling with my executive team, our CEO, our CFO, our CEO on the road doing investor meetings, whether or not that's going to Chicago or going out to Calgary or doing stuff here in Toronto, partaking in oil and gas conferences, being prepared on every level. They would need marketing presentations, fact sheets. We would have to book their, make sure their travel, their logistics. Who are we going to for lunch? Who are we taking out for dinner? And doing all of this schmoozing to make sure that these important investors get to see the management to understand that they're doing their part to see the organizational goals through. Right? So, so beyond schmoozing, what, what do you think is this chief skill that you had to develop in order to do investor relationship building specifically? I think investor relation building is, is it's interesting. I think it's, ch it's changing. This, this would not take 30 minutes. This is going to take hours. But if, I was, <laughs> if I was to be quick on the changing landscape of investor relations, the issue that's going on in the IR space 
is before investor relations, I would call it 10, 20 years ago, you would really just need somebody who was a good communicator. It was a communications, more of a PR role. Now it's changing to become more of a finance-based role because a lot of these funds are popping up in terms of mutual funds and hedge funds in these institutions. And they have very difficult questions because their investment opportunities are now so, so vast. They can invest in an oil and gas company literally anywhere across the globe. So now we really have to compete for capital. You know, when, you, when you're a company in the IR world, you're really trying to explain to these fund managers who have backgrounds in accountings and CFAs and understand derivatives and all of these markets, why the ROI, the return on investment for investing in my company is better than all of the options out there, not just my competitors, but other financial instruments based in capital markets. And now when you sit in that room, you have to understand, you have to be able to speak their language. So you've seen this trend of a change where it used to be a lot of PR people working in communications roles to where now investor relations started to hire people like me, uh, people who have accounting experience that I can read financial statements. So I can say I can understand the financial performance, not just of my company, but I can benchmark that against 10 of my oil and gas peers or mining peers to understand how we're competing against how those companies are performing. And then how does that translate into operating profits and earnings? You know, also these analysts, when you're working with them, they're going to want to forecast out future profitability. That's really the role of the research analyst to basically say, where do I expect this company to be in five years? Not just from an operational standpoint, but from a financial. And what are the KPIs? What's their revenue growth? Are they going to have positive EBITDA? Are they going to have free cash flows? If they do have free cash flows, where are they going to put their money? What's their CapEx expenditure look like over the next five years? And does that want to set this company up for success? That becomes the hard part of the questions that they're asking you in the background. Well, and there's a lot. I mean, in terms of finance, I just feel like oh, there's a lot of uh, lingo. So you were just talking there, their EBITDA, you know, so that's earnings before interest, taxes. What's yeah. Depreciation, amortization. Amortization, yeah. yes. So you have all these, uh, uh, you know, short forms. And so you have to have some understanding of finance in order to be able to talk this language. And yeah. that may not be someone who is just good at writing. Like you it know. takes yeah. more I, I've that. learned a little bit from my wife, who's a CPA as well. Right now, I'm stuck at home with my wife, who's a CPA, and my son, who's a, who graduated. Um, he's in accounting. He's trying to get his CPA, and they, they mm -hmm. we go for a walk, and he starts talking, and I don't know what they're talking about. Right? Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, learning the lingo. I'm starting to learn the lingo, so it's true. And you have you have to learn the lingo because the other yeah. change that we're seeing is again, ten years ago, the difference was if you were a junior mining company, <laughs> typically the people that would know the lingo would be these research channels that either the larger the boutique banks, the Canaccords, the A Capitals, the Raymond James. The issue is, is these banks aren't that profitable anymore, especially when you look at their trading business. The reason why is where trading used to be manual. There's now technology that's coming and using algorithms. So the profits on trading are significantly less. So because the profits on trading is less to trade that company's stock, these banks have less resources to allocate to what's called research coverage. So when I would look at a junior mining company maybe 10 years ago, and they would have, you know, 10, 15 research analysts at different boutique banks covering the firm 
and then providing the firm services in terms of we're going to take you around to our clients who are institutions that will invest, that's really gone away. I look at a junior mining firm today, they might only have two analysts covering the firm, if that, meaning that this responsibility of now finding funds and communicating with them is no longer done by the research analysts on behalf of the company. The company has to have the in-house capabilities to give a phone call to, for example, Bank of America or Fidelity and reach out to their portfolio manager and then take the onslaught of questions they're going to have if they feel like even giving the opportunity to have a meeting. Is that what your company does? Like you are now kind of a, cons- a firm that says we will do that for you. We'll go and approach all these, you know, fund managers and promote you to them and see if they'll put you into their portfolio. Exactly. So what's oh. going to happen is this. Maybe <clears throat> we have two types of clients. The first client that we have are going to be private clients. These are clients that are looking to go public, doing an initial public offering, phrased as an IPO. They can do that on multiple exchanges, the Canadian Securities Exchange. They can do it on, for example, the Toronto Stock Exchange Venture. To get them out the gate, they do what's called private placements. Those are the first round of raises that they do to get the money they need to bring this company to an IPO stage. So if we get a private company, for example, one which I don't mind to disclose is a company called Pesorama. Peso Rama is trying to be the Dollar Rama in Mexico. They actually don't have that brand, but the Dollar Rama model here in Canada and Dollar Tree in the U.S. is very profitable models. They don't have it in Mexico, so now they're opening up a lot of stores. They've come to us at a private level and says, we need your help to raise $30 million. Well, they come to us with a presentation, and it looks horrible. They come to us with their website. They don't have one. So step number one for Storyboard is how do we clean up their act? How do we get them a website that really displays who their management is? How do we clean up their marketing materials? How do we build out investor presentations targeted at an audience, whether or not it's their stakeholders or whether or not it's investment banks? And then we got to parade them around and help them raise that $30 million so they can open up 50 more locations this year. So then next year, they can do an IPO and get more money to continue expansion. Now, would you open that, if you do an IPO, would you do that IPO in Canada or would you do it on a Mexican exchange? They're going to do it right here in Canada. And the, okay. reason, and the reason why they would do it here in Canada is because the, as much as their operations are in Mexico, they still want to be a comparable company to the other dollar store brands that are posted here like Dollarama. So as right. much as it's Pesorama, they are actually saying we are a Canadian company. And then Canadians who've already made, done really well on that investment might say, well, this is the next best opportunity. So they understand that investment. So listing here in Canada will be an easier play than listing in Mexico where people don't understand, you know, the run up that Dollaram has had over the period of time. So, so I got my question. What uh, do you think storyboards comparative advantage? I'm using this economic term I'm learning uh, mm-hmm. is like what makes you guys unique or what do you like about what you guys do? So it's interesting. I think what we do is this. And I think this is where we've had the ability to learn. I think this is where storyboard will change if we had a conversation in a year or two years from now. Mm-hmm. When I wanted to be the reason why I started storyboard is I want to be an entrepreneur. My family is an entrepreneur. They don't work for other people. So I wanted to get my, my head start in working in a corporate environment so I can understand, you know, what that looks like. And then how can I take that experience and start my own business? So then I want to start Storyboard, which was supposed to be an independent IR firm for me. 
So I go out there and find these junior companies and it's me, myself and I servicing maybe two or three junior clients that want a consultant. And But then when I start to do some research on the consulting industry for investor relations, it, I started to realize how fragmented it is. And what I mean by that is there are tons of people out there saying that I'm Richard IR, James IR, Rick IR, EVIR, and they're all running these IR shops saying they've worked in finance um, using their Gmail email accounts with no branding and no home. Yeah. I have a couple of real estate properties downtown and a ton of my friends work in real estate. And I asked myself the question, if I wanted to be a real estate agent tomorrow and I got my realty license, would I start Richard Realty? And the answer is no. I would go work for Remax. I would work for Royal LePage. What are those? Those are platforms for real estate professionals to basically have a turnkey solution to start their business. This investor relations thing is becoming a big deal because there's so many companies that are accessing public markets to raise capital. A lot of them do not want to hire in-house employees because that's expensive, so they leverage consultants, but there's no Remax for us. If I want to be my own entrepreneur, there is no platform for me to have a turnkey solution to be part of a brand, an umbrella, to say now I'm part of Storyboard mm -hmm. And I get an email and I get a business card and they do marketing and they do advertising, they do my accounting, and I only need to focus on servicing my clients. This is what Storyboard became two years ago. So we were the first ever Remax model onboarding independent finance professionals to provide advisory investor relations services to companies. And within a matter of 18 months, we landed 20 clients. Wow. So you you oh. recruit these kind of more like independent uh, investor relations people for your organization? Do, do they, is that the model? Kind of like a, not like a franchise model. It's basically like a real estate agent model. You have yeah, people which, who. Which is basically a franchise model. You franchise model. Okay. So we basically bring these professionals on, on a commission uh, split structure where we take a percentage of their billables that they charge these clients. Our billables come in two forms. One, cash compensation. Two, equity. You know, the main reason why we're there is to drive value and increase stock um, market cap expansion. So, of course, they will give us equity in these firms in the forms of options to give a further incentive for us to really go out there and chase down these investors and find the right investment for the opportunity that we place in front of them. Wow. It must feel like, have you felt uh, overwhelmed at all? Like getting 20 clients in a year, like, is it just a rush or are you like exhausted? I'm exhausted. I admit it, but it's a good thing. I'll tell you why. And this is where I'm saying, I think this is where storyboard will be different. I look at this as a big, um, call it science experiment. I basically had the opportunity, which is very rare to take 20 finance professionals that cover different sectors, mining, oil and gas, cannabis, healthcare, tech, pharma, and put them into one storyboard bubble. And I've been able to see how they interact with their clients, whether or not they're the private company like Pesorama looking to go public, or we've done work for War Cannabis, the second largest cannabis firm in the world at the time was $10 billion before a lot of the cannabis companies had a fall, but not fall down. Um, it's been a great learning experience. I've been able to see how they interact with their clients. I'm able to see what their independent definition of definition is of good service, and I get to see the common complaints. So from my standpoint, being the CEO of Storyboard, I've been able to watch these 20 customers and then start to see like problems across every single company, regardless if they're the small company or they're the big company. 
I'll give you guys one example. One problem is shareholder ownership. Every CEO that we walk into their office, the very first question they ask the investor relations professional is, who's my shareholders? I did, and it happened at Aurora Cannabis. They were, at last year, a $10 billion market cap company. When I asked the CEO who his shareholders was, he says, I know 15% of them. Well, who's the 15%? They're the Fidelities, the TDs, the, the BMOs of the world. So the big institutions. Well, what about the 85%? He shrugged his shoulders. I don't know who they are. Well, why not? Oh, because it's all those people that are day trading at home on their TFSA account and their discount brokerages. And that trend has become huge. Everybody is taking investments into their own hand. Even myself, I invest my own money right through TD discount brokerage. My parents use an investment advisor. But then when I go through those discount brokerage channels, my bank will never disclose to the Aurora or to any one of these clients who I am as an investor. So then over time, as these stocks enter the public market, they have zero visibility on who their shareholders are. And now they focus on, <clears throat> Rich, we're going to spend our IR budget and tailor to all of these institutions, but that's only 15% of your shareholder base. You don't do anything to communicate to the other 85% of people who have bought 100 shares, 150 shares, 10 shares. And this is where now these companies are becoming confused. How do we communicate our story and what we're doing to the masses who we don't know who they are? And you can't actually find out who they are because of privacy. Exactly. So what are you doing? So what we're doing is this, is we're trying to create a technology platform at Storyboard, which we've now been investing in to really bring the communications to a different level. And what that is, is I find we have to look at the demographics of who's actually investing in these companies. It's a lot of younger people today. You know, people my age are a bit younger, and I'm trying to look at the way these companies communicate their messages versus the way it's happening today. If I go to a corporate website today, there's a lot of text. There's a lot of stuff for me to read. The about us, the, you know, the, this is my company and it's reading and it's reading and it's reading and reading's cool, but let's face the facts. That's not the way people absorb information today. You know, people are absorbing information through video content. They want to watch stuff. They do enough reading at work. Even I feel that way. So I say to myself, what can we do for these companies? We're building out a technology platform that we're going to be launching in the next three months that's going to look like their own dedicated Netflix portal, but for that company where they have the ability to invest in video content to tell their story in a different way so that now people can actually watch their content and see what they're doing instead of reading their content. I think it's I kind love of like what we're doing. Hmm? Yeah. Right now with this podcast, is that what you're saying? Yeah. No, I love what you're saying because um, there's a field called user experience design, right? Mm -hmm. And it's sort of like, you know, so people will create an app, but they don't really try and figure out what, how the learner or the user is going to use that, right? Mm -hmm. So you got some engineers designing this thing and they put it out there and nobody wants to use it, even though it could have amazing technology. It's kind of the similar way with this kind of thing where, uh, you know, you need to tailor communication to the user, right? Yeah. Instead of what the, the people with the information want to communicate. That's sort of like backwards. And that's the way it's always been. And so like in my field, e-learning or um, just any kind of communication, right? Um, it's not like the content doesn't necessarily always drive how you communicate. It's how the, the user wants to experience that, right? So it sounds like that's a great 
you know, initiative for you guys to really tailor it towards the, the consumer, right? Exactly. So I think that's the first problem, I guess, with Storyboard. You know, I looked at these <clears throat> 20 companies that we've had, and I say that all of the clients, I think, are a bit confused on the delivery of communications. You know, you have these companies and they're still using these traditional PowerPoint, 30-page PDF presentations <laughs> every single month. You have your clients saying, Rich, we have to change this page. We have to change that page. And it becomes a reoccurring exercise of changing slides because they showed it to somebody different and they have a different opinion. But the real message is never coming across. No. So that's the first thing. I think the second thing is this, and it goes back down to economics. Life is about buying and selling things, right? And when I look at buying and selling, that's what Amazon does. That's what Shopify does. They've become really good at it. They found a platform to help people buy and sell. Well, they use a lot of technology to track what you're looking at when you go to Amazon. If I'm looking at a barbecue somewhere else and I go on Amazon and that marketing site, I see all these barbecues lined up. They know to look at my behaviors online to identify what am I interested in and how can I drive and push a sale through technology. If, I, if you guys do the exercise and I've done it already, I've looked at with my team 100 companies that are publicly traded mining firms, cannabis firms, tech firms, how, what type of software are they using on their site to track the people of who's going there, what they're looking at, are they looking at their galleries, are they reading their financial statements, is it not a buy or sell decision? I understand I'm not buying a t-shirt, but I am buying a share in your company. I'm still right. having to make that ultimate decision, but they haven't implemented software that the retail industry is using for investor relations to encourage people to buy stock and to identify who they are. And that's the biggest, the next biggest problem I've seen. Oh, wow. Very cool. Like, it sounds like you're actually, um, this could be big. I think so. So yeah. we're, we're creating a video platform that one changes the delivery of information and two behind it, it's going to work like a Netflix where when you log into Netflix, it sees all of your user behavior. It knows if you watch drama or if you watch action movies. It makes recommendations of what to watch next. We're going to do the exact same thing when you go to these dedicated portals for these companies. So you can watch, for example, their executives instead of reading a bio. You can look at their actual facilities. You can do a live field trip. I had the opportunity when I was in Colombia to do helicopter rides across oil and gas fields. Retail investors don't have that opportunity. What if we can bring them that experience on a virtual level? And the technology is out there to allow that to happen. Yeah. Well, bringing this back to the real estate market, a friend of ours, they've just uh, bought a house and now you can get these 360s. So they basically video touring a house um, so, good. so that you could actually feel what the house looks like without it having to be static pictures. Yeah. And then okay. you can go on Google Maps and you go get like the satellite view. You can see exactly where you are. It's yeah. not curated by them. You can actually go investigate yourself, which is so cool. You know, mm -hmm. oh, they're this far from the lake or look what's over here. There's a like open pit mining, right? Like <laughs> that kind of information is amazingly effective. No, I really like I, I really like this because I, I've been doing like online trading, as I said. But, you know, I don't know how many years I fought with like lawyers who just want to add jargon and all kinds of text to the courses that I've developed. And, and you try and communicate with them saying, look, people don't want to read all this crap, right? They're going to get bored and they're not actually not going to learn, right? You're, they're going to turn off their minds. And so, but they, they are so 
focused on accuracy and just you know making sure it's technically correct so you get know, like mm-hmm. lawyers and accountants sometimes they're they're working against their end goal right and so this is it sounds like you're combating that right yeah. in a sense right yeah and i just think when i look at the you know it's funny i look at the finance industry certain areas not all um i find it runs like the dinosaur age like for example i also have a friend who's like a real estate agent and they said before COVID, all these real estate, these lawyers would want a real signature on these documents. Well, now all of a sudden COVID happens and they accept, okay, now we can do electronic signatures. Now we can go to DocuSign. Well, why don't we go to DocuSign from before? You know, like it's, it's better for the environment, and, yeah. but they forced it. And these are some of the things where technology is there, but certain areas in finance don't want to accept change. No. Yes. Yes. The multi-documents sign here, sign here, sign here, sign here. You have yep. to sign in a million places and uh, in your life. Sad, eh, that it takes a world pandemic to get these people to get off their butts and change things. <laughs> get off they, their paper. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's true. People resist things that they know are good, or maybe they convince themselves that it's not good. I don't know how really what goes on in people's heads, right? Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think you're, anyway, I, I didn't completely understand, but now I get you're actually creating a platform that other people can come to you and say, Hey, I'm in, in IR and can I use your platform to, um, promote investor relations with this company, this company, and this company. So you, they could actually work with you and you're learning, you're, you have a chance of scaling up. You know, you're getting beyond being just you and a couple of clients. You could actually scale up pretty once you get the structure in place. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, and- wow. What it's great. I mean, it's interesting that no one's thought of this before. Yeah. It's just it's uh it's been it's been it's been a good ride. And it's been it's 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 good, I think, that we have the opportunity to scale the business. It's good, too, as well, because I think technology is a big thing today. And I think there's a massive opportunity to use technology to enhance the skills of these independent advisors. So, again, we're really using these advisors. And what I tell my internal management team is a storyboard MBA. How can we see what these advisors are doing? How can we look for inefficiencies and in how they operate with these clients and then build out technology to make them more efficient? You know, the biggest thing when you hire a consultant is they're not in your office every day. So they're like, are they really doing what they said they're doing? They're sitting at home. I don't see them every day. That's why there's this whole perception. You go to work and you do the nine to five. And even if you sat there and did nothing, once your employer sees you at that desk, they feel like, okay, he's here. So how do we provide that type of, you know, experience? How do we provide an experience where there's some sort of call it, you know, project management tool that provides transparency of what these advisors are doing in terms of if they didn't make calls or if they are making emails, there's a way they can report that back to the company. So the company feels like I hired an independent consultant who I don't see every day, but I know what they're doing every day. You know, and if we can create that software at the storyboard level and deploy it for the consultants, then more of these companies will say, I want to use Storyboard because of the transparency they provide and the efficiency that they offer. So going back to your beginning, so how'd you come up with the name Storyboard? So Storyboard, it's actually funny. A lot of people, they didn't like Storyboard when it first started off. And where we're going, I think it's very fitting. Some people were like, Storyboard, that's an animation company. You guys aren't an animation company. 
But how Storyboard came about was one of our, our chairmen on the board of Storyboard, Chris Legalis. He was the senior vice president of investor relations at Talisman. When I, he hired me when I went to Pacific Rubialis, so we worked there together. We did an exercise called storyboarding. It was when you do an investor open house where you go to New York and you host 100 investors and you bring all the management teams and every single senior VP of their different divisions come up and they say, this is what we're doing in finance, this is what we're doing in production, this is our plan for M&A, this is our plan for exploration. And we need to work with those different executives to figure out what are they going to put in their portion of the deck and bring it all together. And he said, the best way to do that is to do storyboarding. So he booked out this massive boardroom. We took all of these pieces of paper and we put them on this massive desk like it was a puzzle. And we slid them around and did a storyboarding exercise to tell the story of Pacific at that time. So when we started the company, that exercise to me really sunk home of what investor relations was and understanding how the different businesses or divisions within a business all speak to each other. And that's why I decided to call the company Storyboard Communications because we storyboard on behalf of our companies. Wow, this is so interesting. Well, Rich, um, this conversation has kind of flown by mm -hmm. and uh, I have to say, um, it's kind of a cool ending to our series, um, just to see where things are going in the future and uh, to see how our book has kind of been a storyboard mm -hmm. in that we pick chapters of critical ideas that stack on each other. And so we're trying to tell a story too, so that mm -hmm. our shareholders who are students um, might actually... Um, buy into what we're trying to say is that uh, it's really important to learn economics. Yeah. <laughs> so thanks a lot for being our guest. Hey, no yeah, problem. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Anytime you guys need me, you just let me know.